Over the course of this study, I have been emphasizing the uniqueness of these Christ-like virtues that Paul describes as being the fruit of the Spirit. I've talked a lot about how countercultural they would have been in the ancient world of Paul's original audience, and how strange they would have sounded to the ears of an ancient Roman. And this was particularly true for the virtue that we discussed just in the past session, the virtue of gentleness. And perhaps because of that, perhaps because so many of these are countercultural, especially that last one, it seems odd that Paul would end his list of Christ-like virtues with one that is not only not unique in the ancient world, but was in fact widely regarded as one of the most important of all virtues. Indeed, the philosopher Xenophon, who was one of Socrates' most famous students. Xenophon uses this same Greek word that Paul uses here, enkrateia, self-control. He says that enkrateia is not only a important virtue, but is in fact the foundation of the virtuous life. Here's how Xenophon puts it. Shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue? And first lay this foundation firmly in his soul. For who, without this, can learn any good or practice it worthily? Now, of course, there is a difference between what Xenophon says and what Paul says when he is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Xenophon says that self-control, this virtue of enkrateia, he says self-control is the necessary starting point for becoming a, a good and virtuous person. Whereas Paul, on the other hand, lists self-control as the final attribute of his list of Christ-like virtues. Now, I think that difference of ordering is important, and I'll explain why in just a little while. But first, I want to talk about what this virtue is. What is self-control, and why is it so important? You know, every couple of years, the whole world tunes in to watch the greatest athletes in the world compete at the highest level of competition possible. The Olympics are hugely popular, and those who compete are widely admired, not just because of their natural athletic abilities, not just because of the inspiring personal stories behind many of them. No, what many of us most admire about Olympians is their unbelievable dedication, their unbelievable amount of hard work and self-discipline that they have shown as they train for their sport. Now take Katie Ledecky, for instance. Having already won seven Olympic gold medals and 15 world championship gold medals, she is regarded as one of the greatest female swimmers of all time. But all of Katie Ledecky's success is not simply the result of natural talent. She has worked hard, incredibly hard. As a 10-year-old, when others her age were just enjoying their childhood, Katie was training five to six days a week for hours at a time. In fact, even at that age, she was already swimming on average 20 to 25,000 yards per week. By the time she was 12, her workouts had increased to six to seven per week, and she was swimming on average 35 to 40,000 yards per week. Then as a 15-year-old, as a 15-year-old preparing for her first Olympic Games, 
she was training nine times a week and she was swimming on average in her training 60 to 70,000 yards per week. And it wasn't just this arduous training. Every aspect of Katie's life revolves around her sport, from how she spends her time to what and when she eats, to when and how she sleeps. It's no wonder that when the Apostle Paul wanted to illustrate the importance of self-control in his life as a gospel minister, it's no wonder that he chose the analogy of an athlete. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So there you go. Self-control is important. It's important for Olympians and it's important for Christians like the Apostle Paul. But why? What exactly is self-control and why is it so important? Well, the philosopher Aristotle, he described this virtue, encrotea, self-control. He said it's the opposite of something he called akrasia. Now, akrasia is a word that can refer to someone who has a weak will, someone who knows what they should do, but doesn't do it because they are overcome by some sort of emotion or feeling or desire. A good example of this uh, that a lot of ancient people used, a good example is anger. So say you've been waiting in a long line in traffic and all of a sudden someone swerves in front of you and cuts you off. Now, the rational side of you knows that there could be any number of reasons why they did that. Maybe they didn't see that the lane was ending. Maybe they have a sick child in the car and they're trying to get to the hospital. Or maybe they really are just rude. But even if that, that's true, you know that there's nothing you can do to really change the situation at this point. Uh, even so, you feel irate in that moment. You just can't help it. Anger overtakes you and you start honking and swearing and trying to drive past the other person so you can maybe cut them off in return. Uh, Aristotle would call that akrasia, because in that moment, you've lost control. Your anger has overtaken you, and you're no longer doing what you know you should do. You're not acting wisely, even though you know what you should do. Now you're just doing what feels right in the moment. Now, of course, anger is just one example. There are all sorts of feelings and desires, all sorts of what Aristotle called passions, that can come over us and cause us to lose control. Uh, for some of us, it's maybe a love of food or drink. We know that we shouldn't give in to that craving, but we do it anyway. That's akrasia. For some, it's sexual desire. Christians are supposed to be chaste. We are called to sexual purity. And many of us as Christians, we deeply desire to live into that call to chastity. But quite often, Christians find themselves overcome by these desires and they give in to sexual sin. Well, in his autobiography called The Confessions, St. Augustine talks about sexual desire. He talks about how it consumed his life. 
and prohibited him from doing what he knew he should do. He knew he should follow Christ. He knew, in fact, that he wanted to follow Christ. He had seen examples of others doing it and greatly admired them. But he says that years of giving in to his own sexual desires made it impossible for him to do what he knew he should do. In fact, he said that these desires, they were, they were like a chain, a chain that bound him, a chain he could not break. It was no iron chain, he said, imposed by anyone else that fettered me, but the iron of my own will. The enemy had my power of willing in his clutches and from it had forged a chain to bind me. The truth is that disordered lust springs from a perverted will. When lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion. These were the interlinking rings forming what I have described as a chain, and my harsh servitude used to keep me under chains. What Augustine is describing here is classic acrasia. It's the condition of those who are led around by their passions and desires, be it lust or greed or gluttony or envy or any other passion. And that's why self-control, that's why this virtue of encrateia is so important. It's not just Olympic athletes who need self-control. Every person who wants to do the right thing, who has a goal for their lives that they want to pursue, they need to be able to not be controlled by their passions and desires. You know, that's why the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, how can we become a people who exercise self-control? How can we avoid being led around and enchained by our desires, acting out of compulsion like St. Augustine did? Uh, it is at this point that the New Testament departs from the world of ancient philosophy and charts very different course. As I mentioned, the philosopher Xenophon, he said that self-control is the foundation of all virtues, but St. Paul listed it at the very end of his list of these fruits of the Spirit. And there's a reason for that. You see, for Xenophon, the virtuous life, the successful life, well, it was the result of hard work and self-discipline. Xenophon would have said, you can become a great person you just have to set your mind to it. You have to learn how to take control over your own life and behavior. And in the modern world, we're not all that different from Xenophon. We too think that attaining greatness is often a matter of taking control of your life, having a strong will, not letting others keep you down, doing whatever it takes to succeed, like Katie Ledecky. She determined to swim 25,000 yards a week as a 10-year-old, and look where she ended up. But the New Testament says something very different. The New Testament doesn't say that you can become like Jesus 
If you just buckle down and get to work and discipline yourself. No, it says that the only way to become like Jesus is if the Holy Spirit actually takes control of your life and reshapes how you think and what you want and how you behave. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, that's why when Paul talks about those who walk according to the flesh, those who are controlled by their sinful desires, those who have that vice of acrasia, he doesn't contrast them with people who control themselves. Paul doesn't say that rather than walking according to the flesh, we should walk according to the strength of our own self-will. No. What does he say? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the opposite of acrasia for Paul, it's not really self-control as it was for Xenophon and Aristotle. It's being controlled by the Spirit. Instead of being led around by our passions and desires, Paul says, we should be led around by the Spirit of God. And that's why he lists this virtue of ankriteia, self-control, or what's sometimes translated continence, it's why he lists it at the very end of his description of the fruit of the Spirit. It's why he doesn't do what Xenophon did and say that this is the foundation of all the virtues. Because for Paul, self-control isn't something you and I can attain through our own hard work and discipline. Self-control, not being controlled by our desires, that's something that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit's work in making us more and more like Jesus. And yet, even with all of that said, both Paul and Peter still urge us to cultivate self-control. Don't be controlled by your anger or your lust or your greed or your vanity or any other passion. Why? Well, because when those things control your life, it becomes impossible for you to be a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness, goodness, gentleness. Well, so what then should we do? How can we cultivate this quality of self-control if it's a gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, I know that this may sound very basic, certainly not as sophisticated or planned out or strategic as Katie Ledecky's training regimen, but I would suggest that because it is a gift of the Holy Spirit, that the primary way to, cult to cultivate self-control is by attending to what we Anglicans often like to refer to as the means of grace. Now, do you know that phrase, the means of grace? It's in the prayer that concludes the daily services of morning and evening prayer in the prayer book that we pray every day. That prayer called the general thanksgiving, where we thank God for all his goodness and loving kindness to all, to us and to all whom he has made. And in that prayer, we thank him for the means of grace and the hope of glory. But what does this phrase mean? Well, when we talk about the means of grace, we're talking about the ways that God is at work in our lives. The means of grace are the instruments or the tools that God, the Holy Spirit, uses to join us to Christ and to make us more and more like Him. And what are these means? What are these instruments? Well, they include a number of things. 
but primarily they refer to the reading and meditation of scripture. They refer to daily prayer. They refer to gathering with other Christians for encouragement and confession of sin. And they refer to sacramental worship. These, of course, they're not the only ways that God is at work in our lives, but they are the primary means that he uses. And so they're also the primary way that we train ourselves to become more and more like Jesus. And Katie Ledecky, she has her own training routine, and we have ours as well. The only difference is that our training regimen isn't a way of attempting to take control of our own lives. Our training regimen is a way of allowing the Holy Spirit, making space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to make us more and more like Jesus for the sake of the world. And that's why we continue to read and study scripture. That's why we persevere in prayer. It's why we meet for worship. It's why we come together in small groups because these are all means of grace. They are tools that the Holy Spirit uses. They are our training regimen. And as we continue in them day after day and week after week and year after year, we will come to find that we have more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, and more self-control than we did before. <laughs>